0: Hey there, my name is Sean, and this is Grit True Stories That Matter. Grit is a weekly podcast about stories, the contemporary personal narrative kind of story, and the people that craft and tell them. Why, you ask? Well, we want to feature these tellers and their stories, and also to help you, our listeners, craft and tell better, more engaging, more relatable, and more memorable stories. True stories, personal stories, Grit stories. We're in the middle of season number three, dedicated to grit talks and the best of. Today, we've got two stories from the Mental Health Happiest Hour, which is a virtual open mic. Story number one is by Tina McKenna. Tina lives up in upstate New York. I first met Tina. She was a teller at one of our 99 second story slams. And she not only told some stories there, but she ended up winning one of the slams and then winning the entire Grand Slam. Story number two is by Ken Stockton, who lives in the great state of Michigan. I first met Ken last year at one of our Mental Health Happiest Shower open mics. I want to thank both of you for crafting these stories and telling these stories and letting me use them here on The Grit Podcast. I really do appreciate it. And I will include any other information that you might want to know about in the show notes. But, alas, let us move on. Tina and Ken Let's dive in.
1: Every night at exactly seven, California time, as we all sat around the dinner table, the phone would ring, my father would answer, and then he would turn to us and he'd say, wrong number. Then he would go back into the bedroom for a few minutes and he'd come back out and he'd say, I have to go somewhere. And then when he would disappear for most of the night, and when he came back, I'd say, Daddy, where have you been? And he said, what are you saying? I've, I've been here with you kids. We, we watched Ed Sullivan. There was, you know, Topo Gizhou, the little Italian mouse puppet, you know, Chinese acrobats and plate spinners and, you know, some opera singer. And then we all watched, we all watched uh, Bonanza. And I'd say, yeah, but you weren't here, Daddy. And he'd say, oh, little girl you're a cuckoo. So one day when the phone call comes, my mother distracts him and I run and I slide in under the bed. He gets on the phone and he says, hi, Teresa. How you doing, darling? No, 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 sweetheart. Don't don't cry. It's okay. It's okay. I I love you. I love Carol and Terry and Dickie. You're my real family. These, These kids that live here, those are Louise's kids. I, I, don't, I don't love any of them. So I press my face into the carpet and I begin to scream because I've just heard my father, who I absolutely adored and who would let me ride him like a humpback whale in the pool and who taught me Shakespeare to get rid of my stutter and who made me Mickey Mouse pancakes on Sunday and taught me how to draw a Popeye. I've just heard him say that he didn't love me. So he says to Teresa at the end of the call, I'll see you and the kids at mass on Sunday. So he leaves. And then my mother drags me out from under the bed and she grills me. And then she takes this piece of string that she had measured for the miles that he would go every night. And she takes a thumbtack and she ties one one side to the thumbtack and the other she ties a pencil. And then she takes a map of Sacramento, she puts the thumb back where we live, and she draws this circle with the pencil. And then she calls every single Catholic church in the area. And she says, my college roommate just moved here, but I don't know her maiden name. But I know her children are Terry, Dickie, and Carol. So my mother gets the name from one of the churches, and she finds out that it's this woman that. They worked together for years in Sacramento. And before that, they had both worked in the San Francisco office. And so my mother finally gets the courage to confront my father. And she does the best shade I think I've ever heard. She says, oh, Ross, at least trade up. So uh, that ends my parents' marriage. My mother gets, loses custody because she has this young Irish priest boyfriend. My father has custody. We live with him for several years. And then he never marries Teresa at that time. But after about eight years, he finally marries her. And then shortly thereafter, he takes his own life. So 30 years later, I'm at my mom's and we've got this big box of real tape. We had like an old bell and howl, this big metal uh, projector. And you'd put a sheet on the wall and they never were labeled. And you have to thread through all these little reels and stuff, these metal reels. So my dad, he used to, you know, thread them through and he'd start to play the the tape. Then, you know, it was always a, an AT&T golf tournament. And he'd say, oh, you kids don't want to see this golf tournament. And he just kept threading until he found something we'd want to see. So on one of the golf tournament reels, my mother decides to play through. And after about 20 seconds, it changes from the golf tournament to a 1950s ranch-style home. There's the backyard. There's a kiddie pool. And there's two toddlers and a, and a baby. And they're splashing around in the pool. And there's this woman in a seersucker sunsuit. And she's playing with them. Then she gets up and she switches uh, places with the man holding the camera. He goes down. And he plays with the kids for a while. Then he stands up and he turns around and he faces the camera. And it's my father. And I realized that Dickie and Carol and Terry were not my stepbrother and sisters. They were my half-siblings, and that my father was their father. He had cut the tape for the golf tournament into little slices, and he had spliced them onto these these reels of his real family. So my mother and I, we took the box and we put it back in the closet we didn't watch anymore and then we put the projector back and we made a deal that we would never let my brothers know about my father's other family and to this day they still don't know that and when my mother dies my brother ross goes in the closet and he gets out the tape and the projector and he wants to take it he says you know he's going to transfer them to like vhs or whatever And I don't have to worry about the secret because I know my brother Ross enough to know that he was never going to to transfer those tapes. But every night for years at exactly seven, California time, wherever I was, I would call my stepmother. And when she would answer, I would hang up because even to this day, if the phone rings and I answer and there's silence, I am that little girl under the bed, hearing her father say that he didn't love her.
2: So I grew up in Trenton, New Jersey. I was brought up in a family where the father had uh, serious mental health problems, pretty much lifelong. So when I was about uh, ten years old, apparently he started uh, showing some disturbing behavior, which I think was a combination of uh, heavy duty sleep, and then occasional high energy and you know very energized. Uh, kind of indecisive ad hoc behavior, unlike the way he normally behaved. Now, granted, this was in the 50s, so he went to the family physician. The diagnosis at that point was sleeping sickness, which is pretty bizarre. So there was really no treatment given to him. That was the diagnosis. And then his behavior became much more erratic and much more high energy. So then eventually, I mean, I come to find out Back, you know, probably 60s and 70s, this was called manic depression. And of course, now it's called bipolar. For me, as a 10-year-old, I didn't really understand what was going on. In fact, there was some element of his behavior that was pretty enjoyable for me. For example, he would, in his sleepless nights, maybe wake me up at 1 o'clock in the morning, and take me to the YMCA, which was 24-7, and we'd go swimming, or we would play basketball. Or he would go to my school, Joseph Stokes Elementary School, Trenton, New Jersey, sign me out, and take me out to do something, you know, something crazy. And one of the memorable incidents I remember was, he took me to lunch, which in the past, he never took me to lunch, or you know, this was not part of the family. He was working class, worked in a factory, uh, also, he stopped going to work regularly. He would go to work a little bit, come home, go to the Y. So he took me to lunch. You know, we ate a lot of food. And then and he started interacting with one of the waitresses, waitstaff. And he told her that he was very strong and very physically fit. He proceeded to get on the floor of the dining room. And I tell you no lie, he did 100 push-ups. In the meantime, I see the waitstaff going like this, which... I didn't really understand exactly what that meant, but I came to understand that that meant your father is really crazy. Uh, Then, and we had very limited income. We lived in an 800 square foot row house in Trent, New Jersey. And he started unrelenting excessive spending. There were a couple days where every day he came home with a new used car. And my uh, mother would say, Tom, you got to take this back. We can't have this car. Uh, one of the interesting things that he did was he played, the, he was a harmonica player. He played the harmonica dur- during World War II. And it was self-learned. And he loved to play the harmonica. And he decided that we were going to try out for Ted Mack in the original Amateur Hour. And for those of you who are not in advanced age like me, Ted Mack had a radio show, which is a talent competition. Then it became a TV show. And it was really the 1950s precursor of America's Got Talent. He gets me out of school. We drive to New York City. And we audition for Ted Mack in the original Amateur Hour. He plays the harmonica. I play the flutophone, which is kind of this primitive elementary school instrument. A couple weeks later, they called and we had passed the audition. We were going to be on Ted Mack. The only problem was we couldn't go because by that time, my father was an inpatient at Trenton Psychiatric Hospital in Trenton, New Jersey, literally three quarters of a mile from my house. What happened a few days before Christmas, my father convinced all of us in the family, my mother, my older brother, that, quote, somebody was after him. So he made us turn off all the lights in the house. It was about seven or eight o'clock. He made us go under the bed in the master bedroom. He had a candle, which wasn't particularly safe. We're under the bed with a candle. And as a 10-year-old, I still don't understand. And I, I, you believe your father. I believe him. Somebody's after my father. We have to turn out the lights. And be. So finally, my mother understands that this is a serious problem, and we're all at risk. And she calls the state police. The state police come, two, two in a squad car. They get my father. He is extraordinarily manic and strong. He overpowers the two state troopers, so they call for backup. Two more state troopers come. The bottom line is, as a 10-year-old, I observed my father being dragged out of the house by four state troopers. And I have a memory. I think they put him in a straitjacket. I think they handcuffed him and had him in a straitjacket. They drove them three quarters of a mile up to Trenton Psychiatric. The context of Trenton Psychiatric Hospital was it was founded in 1848 with, by Dorothy, Dorothea Dix, who was an early advocate for mental health care. And she was very advanced. And this hospital was founded in 1848. However, the first superintendent of Trent psychiatric hospital was a guy by the name of Dr. Cotton And his belief about mental illness was that it was caused by systemic infections, usually of stomach things. So he actually would take patients, drag them into the operating room, take out their colons, take out their gallbladders, remove limbs, and the fatality rate, and this happened, this was going on from about 1910 to about 1930. When my father was admitted in the late 50s, early 60s, it truly, there were 4,000 patients and it truly was, it still was a house of horrors. My brother would not, and we had a, the ability to visit my father after about three weeks in the psychiatric hospital. And I agreed to go because I really miss my father. My brother wouldn't go. He was too fearful. And it was a scary place. I mean, it was a park-like setting in these beautiful architectural gems of buildings, but there were f- about 4,500 patients. When you walked past the buildings, the windows had bars on them. There were many human beings hanging out the windows as we walked by, begging for money, cigarettes, and whatever. When you walked into the ward, it truly was a scene, out of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. They painted the walls sort of army green. My father was dressed in green, like a jumpsuit. Everybody was dressed in green. There was heavy smoking. And my father stayed there for three months and he was administered electroshock treatment. And it was the primitive electroshock treatment, which is painful and horrible and whatever. And I can remember visiting my father on Sunday. You were allowed to visit him on Sunday for two or three hours. And he was really, it was scary because he was disengaged. He was, he, His affect was real low and slow and it was scary. Now, the good news is, Many patients who were admitted to Trenton Psychiatric never got out, or they never got out alive. He got out. And the other good thing was he never lost his job. But there was a reason he never lost his job. And that's because he had an inside connection to somebody in the ownership of the company. The good news is he got out, he continued to work, and he had a few more manic episodes. He was mostly moderately depressed most of his life. He had a few more manic episodes and he lived a long life. He lived till he was 90. As he got older, the psychotropic medications were then used more frequently. He got on lithium and he was much more balanced. When I look at that experience, it probably was one of the biggest traumas of my life. There was a lot of shame in in those days, and there probably still is, when there's a family member that has mental illness person with mental illness is either blamed or the family is blamed or you cover it up. When you have a person with serious mental health issues in your family, it's contagious. That trauma is contagious. And we all suffered tremendously for decades as a result of having a mental health issue in our family, right? It was not to be diminished. I think the other lesson that I learned is that my father was dealt a very terrible hand in life. He had a serious health problem. And I look back and I think to myself, did he do the best he could do under the circumstances? And my answer to that is yes. I feel comfortable about saying yes. You know, the more we can do to have empathy and compassion and understanding of people who've been traumatized or people who have mental health issues, the better we all will be. Communities, families, partners of Survivors and trauma victims.
0: As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support and special thanks to Tina McKenna and Ken Stafton. Thank you both for your stories. And remember, on Fridays, we do have an open swap shop. At least it is for now. What does that mean? Well, you can join us on Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern. And for a couple of hours, we help each other with our stories. And we usually also dedicate some time to story mining. We have a few activities where we can generate some new ideas for stories that you may want to craft and further develop. So it's fun. Hope to see you there. I will include the Zoom link in the show notes. And that is all for episode number 85. Boom.